You're listening to Reality Check, Sci-Fi London's podcast about science fiction in various media. I'm Alex Fitch, and in this show, I'm talking to the directors of two new cutting-edge animated films which mix animation and live-action footage to beguiling effect. Later in the show, I'm talking to British animator Paul Bush about his first feature film, Babeldom, which looks into the layers of history and potential future that are unearthed by explorers of the modern city. Mixing a dialogue between two residents of a dystopian city in the style of Chris Marker's La Jetée, with visuals that recall the architecture of Fritz Lang's metropolis, Babeldom is an evocative look at mankind's varied relationships with the crowded spaces we inhabit. Before that, in a Q&A recorded at Sci-Fi London, the London International Festival of Science Fiction and Fantastic Film, Zoltan Sostai is discussing his film Cycle, a spiritual successor to Tron and the Matrix, which sees a nameless astronaut trying to escape a bleak urban landscape which twists and loops back on itself, creating an endless maze he can't find the exit from. That was very much a labour of love, sir. It strikes me as a movie that... When you conceived of it, it was a film that perhaps struck you as images first. Uh, yeah, right. Uh, well, uh, I started to uh, think about the movie as uh, a series of Im- images. Um, uh, I started, uh, it started as an idea uh, built on the images by uh, Kubrick and also mm-hmm. Tarkovsky, Tarkovsky's Mirror. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's where it started. So... I'm not sure it really ended up on the same level, but... <laughs> well, I, I think, you know, if anyone was to have a criticism of 2001, it's that we never really spend enough time with the creators of the monolith at the end. We almost need more of an exploration of what's the experience of meeting a higher life form or meeting the singularity would be like. And that seems to be something that you're very much exploring in this film. Well, uh, I certainly didn't want to explore exactly what happened in mm, 2001. Sure. So, uh, but those sort of themes? Uh, yeah, there are sort of themes, but um, I really think that there, the images that I, uh, I put in a film are, are only homages or something like that, you know. Um, so nothing, nothing really uh, about 2001, of course. Mm. But I thought one thing that was really intriguing was the way that when you look at the characters on screen, the way that they move, the way that they have a slightly artificial sheen to them, at times you can't tell if they're played by actors or if they're computer generated. And that ambiguity, I guess, is something that's very much at the heart of the film. Yeah, um, that specialty is uh, because of the motion capture. Mm. Uh, because the film was made with motion capture animation, um, at least the full body animations and uh, some other animations like the hands, the faces and so on were animated by hand. Um, it certainly gives an odd feel to the, to the film uh, because obviously even with today's technique you can't really do uh, a really photorealistic animation. Mm. So you really can cheat the eyes even if um, you see the uh, $500 million Avatar movie uh, you really can cheat the eye. Of course this is at the same level mm. uh, of animation, but um, well, it adds to the feeling, and I certainly used it. Mm. So um, when 
when I started doing the film, I obviously knew that it's not going to be 100% photorealistic. So um, the whole idea of the film um, really used that ambiguity of mm. animation, really. But the thing is, when um, you see films that are supposedly photorealistic, like there was a Final Fantasy movie that came out a few years ago, it's uncomfortable to watch because they don't manage to make it realistic. But with yours, it actually works in, in the film's favour because you don't know what's real and what's not. And it's not trying to pretend that what you're looking at is real, but there is some kind of human drama behind it all. Yeah, certainly. Uh, I mean, that was the goal. Uh, when you start uh, doing a film as an animator, even if you are, you know, I mean, even if you are in Hollywood, uh, I think you really have to, um, you really have to know that your film is not going to be 100% realistic. So you have to build on that, and uh, of course, I build a story and, and the idea on that. Uh, so not being not being 100% realistic. So. Um, yeah, it has to the ambiguity, and um, and I really hope um, that you know sometimes not being a hundred percent realistic is uh, not falling off the screen. Mm. And in in recent years, there's been a kind of revival of nineteen eighties music, of nineteen eighties computer graphics. Obviously, there was the Tron sequel, which I think its budget extended uh, beyond <laughs> any kind of uh, sense of being a proper sequel in terms of narrative conclusion. And then you have a film like um, Scott Pilgrim, which celebrates 1980s computer games and chip tunes. And it strikes me that looking at the aesthetic of the film and listening to the soundtrack, those were the kind of things that you wanted to celebrate as well, that kind of 80s synth music and those kind of graphics that perhaps don't tell the whole story, but have a certain evocative quality to them more than the fully rendered graphics of something like Avatar. Sure, uh, that was intended because uh, you know I grew up in the eighties, so uh, in the late eighties uh, uh, I I used Commodore sixty fours and so on. So I wanted to uh, somehow celebrate uh, that. Uh, of course, uh, the science fiction films that I like uh, to watch are really made in, in the late 70s, early 80s, and they have a really special uh, feeling to them. Um, so, and maybe uh, even a special 80s mood, so to mm. say. So I try to recapture some of it. Yeah. Do you think you'd uh, describe yourself as an optimist? Because this is the, the third Q&A I've done um, in a row following Radio Free Albemuth and um, Strange Frame, where there seems to be very much a kind of dystopian um, theme going on. I mean, you know, there is talk about the, the end of the world in that movie. I mean, do you see, you know, some kind of ray of hope at the end of it? Um, well, it's, um, you know, um, I'm not a pessimist and I'm not an optimist. Um, uh, what I wanted to uh, do is to do a film that is not uh, uh, not deliberately optimistic because uh, you see the Hollywood stuff in the movies uh, and they're always optimistic and uh, the first question I always have regarding this film is uh, why isn't there a happy ending and so on <laughs> that resolves everything because real life is not mm. optimistic and I, I don't want it to uh, tell lies to the people because uh, 
uh, doing a simple Hollywood film with an optimistic ending is basically telling lies to the people. Um, it would be if you were doing a pessimistic film too, because um, in life there are no really optimistic and pessimistic events, I think. Mm. They're just events and you have to make something out of them. Mm. Um, so I wanted to mimic that with the film. Although maybe there was an optimistic ending in the middle of the film and we just didn't <laughs> notice him escape. Yeah, maybe there was an optimistic <laughs> ending, yeah. Um, does anyone in the audience have any questions for the director? Um, go for it. Yeah, the film sort of reminds me of a bit like um, Stanley Kubit working with David Bowie and like, kind of extend it to like Major Tom in, in that sort of frame of work, storyline and so forth. So it reminds me of that because going back, back in the 80s and like in the 70s with, with, with Major Tom and Ashes and Ashes, it sort of reminds me of that sort of feel mm -hmm. it and, and so just sort of doom and gloom, there's no escape, he's not going to come out of it at all. And, um, and, and, and that's, that's what I like about it, and so forth. And also, he's got that sort of feeling, you sort of feel for the character as well. You know? And also, I call it, when I start, I call these movies um, psychedelic punk, yeah. where it's sort of like get to your mind and everything like that. And, um, you know, I think he's done a good work. Uh, great, thanks. Uh, I obviously wanted to do a little bit of psychedelic movie. Uh, not too much because then it wouldn't be a movie at all. But, <laughs> um, the, the, the problem uh, for me was to uh, do a film that is uh, visually entertaining, uh, just as entertaining as um, when, you're, uh, when you're watching a Pink Floyd video clip. Um, uh, video clips are really, really good uh, if you're in a special mood. <laughs> um, but you, you don't have to be in a special mood to enjoy them. Uh, but uh, that flow of the video clips, um, that you know, that instant flow uh, without the story and so on, is really compelling. The problem is is to marry that mm. kind of feeling with films because uh, um, the films I saw that uh, video clip directors directed are not really so they don't really have to do anything with the video clips. Mm. They just use the camera movements or some of that MTV cuts and so on, but they don't really capture the video clips uh, flowing idea. Mm. So I wanted to do uh, a film that has some bits of video clip things, especially Pink Floyd video clip things mm. in it. Um, I don't know if I succeeded because it's a, it's, it's a really hard thing to do, I bet a lot of people tried it before me mm. and uh, they obviously haven't succeeded because I haven't <laughs> seen any good film um, that uh, looks like a video clip mm. um, except for the last uh, 23 minutes of Space Odyssey. <laughs> Was uh, David Bowie an influence? Not exactly David Bowie, okay, but uh, uh, a lot of um, early 70s songs inspired me, of course. Not. David Bowie, but you know, okay, Space Oddity is one of them. Hmm. I mean, in fact, it's kind of there was a 1970s punk sci-fi film um, called Liquid Sky, and I remember seeing stills from that film. And then when I saw the film itself, they were never as exciting as the stills. And it feels like you finally animated the stills from that movie to make the film that I wanted to see 20 years ago. Uh, no, I uh, sorry, I haven't seen that film. <laughs> it's not available in Hungary. Uh, yeah, go for it. I, um, I was quite
quite interested in the dialogue um, because it's quite um, it's quite repetitious and the yeah. way that they use the words they're almost like they're almost like entirely abstract symbols that they're just inserting in chunks. So I was wondering if you could explain a bit about how that was written. Um, you mean only the dialogue, so the script, or uh, yeah, sorry, the script, the script written, yeah. Um, <laughs> No, uh, it has a written script, uh, but uh, the film evolved from a simple time travel movie. Um, it started out as a time travel movie, but it evolved. Um, and uh, the animation was finished, uh, it, it was uh, almost complete, and the film images were also almost complete. Um, but then after that I decided to, to do another uh, version of the film, mm. a better version, which... Uh, which really incorporates the cycle idea a bit more, um, the multiverse idea a bit more, mm. and uh, um, so I then I rewrote the script, mm. and uh, you know, um, of course, um, when it, the film started out, um, um, it's point zero. Mm. Um, uh, I I haven't really used uh, this uh, over and over and uh, over again idea, uh, so it just bumped out. I guess a year after the the original idea was born. <laughs> I don't know if it's a good explanation. <laughs> well, it's funny. I mean, when you speak about adding new dialogue to the film, uh, supposedly the way that Marvel write their comics is that um, the writer comes up with the idea. The artist then illustrates it, and then the writer adds the speech afterwards. And so it was almost like you were collaborating yourself with yourself. Yes, yeah, certainly. Yeah, you know, I realized that uh, with uh, with an animation film, uh, you have lots of possibilities, lots of uh, possibilities that you don't have in a in a real film, because you can uh, overdub the original animation, the or, the original uh, voices, and. Um, um, this way you can do a better version. F, in fact, uh, after I finished the cycle version of the film, which was, I think, in September, uh, I read the film and I did it again and I did it again. So the one you're seeing is version 4, I think. <laughs> do you think you might put more than one version on the same DVD to give people um, the opportunity to have an interactive version of the film? Um, well, um, it could be, but uh, <laughs> from a from uh, from uh, a certain point, you can't do more from the same stuff. Mm. You know, I had the problem uh, already uh, that I worked the limited amount of animations, so mm. I had to uh, reuse animations so that uh, I put in new cameras and so on um, from another perspective. Um, as you can see, one of the in one of the corridor sequences. Mm. Um, so I had to reuse them because I couldn't. Re, uh, do the motion capture sessions and so on. So um, theoretically, you could do that, but practically, I won't really do that. Okay. Any more questions, yeah, lady at the back? Um, did you think about and uh, a lot, and did you feel you had to make many concessions to make the film commercially viable? And just tying in, does that also have anything to do with the fact that you don't see their mouths a lot when they speak? So it can go in multiple languages. Well, um, the fact that you're not seeing their mouth is uh, because um, I knew that it's not going to be really good uh, in terms of animation because even the Avatar guys, they really got it right. So uh, 
um, I place the camera so that they're not going to that you're not going to see uh, uh, the lips so often or the faces. Um, you have to do uh, that kind of workarounds if you're uh, working with almost zero budget. And but I guess you'd have to work uh, that way if you're working with I don't know ten or fifty million because it's uh, not really good. But um, I didn't want to make the film really commercially, I don't know, available for everyone because it's obviously not a film for everyone, as I think you can see. So I don't know what my father would say <laughs> if he saw the film, but <laughs> what the fuck is what comes to my mind. Uh, um, but I, I yeah, um, I wanted to add. Um, those 80 sequences, those color 64 sequences, and so on, uh, uh, deliberately because I thought, well, maybe this way people would uh, connect to it. So that's, uh, I think, the only thing that I would I did mm. uh, for the film's commercial success. But it's something I also did because I I really liked that era. So. Mm. But obviously, by not seeing their lips move, it makes it a lot easier for you to add a completely different dialogue track uh, later on in the filmmaking process. Well, it's um, it's not really um, important because uh, mm. when you see animated movies, uh, over them into another language, uh, like and really uh, usual ones like Pixar stuff and so on, um, the audience doesn't really notice that that it's. Uh, it's not the way it used to move. Mm. Uh, it should move because uh, obviously Pixar doesn't make a Portu Portuguese or a, a Spanish or other version. So you you can just overdub the the animations and uh, people would see it as real. I think mm. uh, hopefully real or close to real. Anyway, mm. so that that was not the idea. The idea was that what I said that sure. the animation is not really good. <coughs> even today. <laughs> it was atmospheric though, and you know, that's kind of the most important thing. Um, any other questions? Yeah. Uh, was he human, and was Moonbase in reference to our moon? Was he said about that? Um, <laughs> he might be. <laughs> um, I originally wanted to Jack to be human. Um, and, uh, well, well, that's it. <laughs> so how many Turing machines are there in the movie? I can, I can give you a minimum amount. I can only give you a minimum amount, which is... Uh, the minimum amount is three, I think. That is the, the basic minimum amount on which you can build the concept, which is consistent with itself, I think. Zoltan, that was a fantastic-looking film and a really intriguing one, and thank you very much. Thank you very much. Cycle was released in Hungarian cinemas on the 21st of February, following last year's premiere at Sci-Fi London, and hopefully will be receiving a wider European release soon. For more information about the film, please go to vimeo.com stroke cycle the movie. Next, here's my interview with British animator Paul Bush about his feature film, Babeldom. So your first feature film... Um, Babeldom 
comes out next Friday in the UK. And I guess um, as a culmination of your work so far, your previous short films have been uh, live action and animation. And this as a mixture of the two, I guess, kind of expresses what you've been doing with film um, in your career at the moment. Well, I was working for some time on some more uh, kind of drama scripts, mm. actually, which didn't go into production. And I had this idea of uh, a film that possibly I could make without much money that was like a little bit of documentary, a little bit of animation, and kind of a dramatic and fictional um, story in the middle of it, holding it all together. Mm. And it just seemed like it might be a good idea to make a film that related more to my previous short work, you know, across uh, some of the same territory, rather than make a complete uh, dramatic fiction. Mm. And I guess as a British filmmaker, it's probably quite hard to get experimental films into the cinema these days. Did you feel that working in the kind of the travelogue um, genre, as it were, after the likes of Gallivant and the films of Andrew Cotting was perhaps a relatively safe route, although you took it in a very different direction to your forebears? No, I didn't think it was safe. I I thought it was unlikely that it would get distributed (laughs) in the UK. I'm really delighted that it it has been. It was a target to get... um, theatrical distribution in the UK for me, of course, but I thought it was going to be one of the hardest targets to, to achieve, mm. and I think, you know, lots of credit goes to ICO and Picture House who supported it. Mm. Um, I didn't, I mean, the thing about Andrew Cotting's work and Patrick Keeler's work is, I mean, both of them are long standing kind of colleagues of mine from a long time back so I guess we're all informed by similar similar other films and that's how it comes to be that's how they come to be to to have some crossover but I didn't do it for any kind of commercial Mm. um, to to make it more commercial and I I just think I'm very lucky to get it distributed here Mm. in terms of the kind of films that did influence you though there seem to be um, direct references to Fritz Lang's Metropolis, certainly with some of the visuals, and to um, Chris Marker's La Jetée with the sort of time-fractured dialogue between the two protagonists. Were those um, films that you had in mind at all when making it? Not Metropolis, actually, although, of course, I know it really well. I didn't want that kind of... Um, I thought that, that that kind of kind of more dystopian, Orwellian... Um, and, you know, vision of people turned into um, robots wasn't part of my vision, although I love the film. Mm. And I guess maybe, well, it's a funny kind of way, because I didn't, I'm not, I'm not I, there's no set design in my film. I mm. just went off, you know, with a camera and shot in some of the big cities of the world, and some of them do look like the set designs of Metropolis. Yeah. They're almost like, you know, places like Dubai, and Shanghai, some of those buildings, you know, are very similar mm. looking. So I think that's happened by chance. But um, I, I, lit, I watched Sans Soleil mm. a lot while I was making the film. 
and I've always loved Le Chete. I think it's just a stunning and very, very moving film. And I think what I... Perhaps Le Chete is more moving for me than Sans Soleil, and I really wanted to make a film that delivered something emotionally, and that's, um, you know, the relationship between the two characters. Mm. What was the starting point of the film? Is it just that you're a city dweller and started ruminating about the, the archaeology of the, the places that we inhabit? One of the advantages of making a low-budget film that hasn't got any kind of any, uh, any script, any conventional script, was that the film could develop while I made it. <laughs> I mean, there's disadvantages to that as well, and one of the kind of feeling that the thing's never going to get finished. <laughs> but uh, one of the advantages that it didn't have a conventional script and I had about um, 10 pages of writing about this future city, some, some kind of um, invented language, uh, invented uh, mathematical systems, um, some kind of political feeling of politics, or rather politics kind of having drained away and become unimportant. Mm. And um, that was the kind of basis of the of the dialogue between the two characters and I see other the other kind of starting point from the, for the film was um, a kind of experimental documentary that I made for Channel 4 about 10 oh more now I think it was uh, actually about 14 years ago now mm. um, which in which I went to I, I, I tried to archive and actually make a film out of the moving images made um, in science and military and research that weren't being kept. And I wanted to use, make a portrait of the UK as it is now, as it was then, which mm. was about 1998, through these images that I felt would, would, would give a kind of more interesting and more a certainly kind of genuine portrait of the way we were because these images were, simply hadn't been made in order to show the way we were. So I wanted to revisit that kind of um, science footage um, because I felt that, you know, the, the, docu although the, doc the film I've made, Babeldom is, is science fiction, mm. but actually all the images are contemporary. They're not, and they're not faked. So they're basically mm. images from modern cities and their images being made in science departments all around the world. Mm. And that's as near as we can get to the future. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting that the, the science fictional city is something that's kind of just out of normal people's uh, sphere of influence. Because if you look at films like uh, Michael Winterbottom's Code 46, in order, the way that he made a futuristic city was just to do a mashup of you know a street from Dubai, a street from Shanghai, a street from the Docklands, and by you know turning a corner from one to the other, the juxtaposition of all the modernity suggests kind of an uber city that I guess you know the the world's collective architecture is heading towards. I, I thought um, I thought the film was mainly shot in Dubai. Um, mm. I didn't realise he shot in other cities, but yeah, that's in effect, in effect what I do, trying to put try to put together a city, um, you, uh, filming in all, and even not in specifically modern cities. Mm. So um, I, and I also wanted to film the underground city, mm. and I filmed quite a lot in Switzerland because I was working there and I got access to some of the underground nuclear shelters that were built in the 60s. 
and still exist there and um, it, that's, it's an assemblage of, of cities mm. all over the world and, e- and even quite unlikely ones that one doesn't think of as modern there's a beautiful light building for instance that I use quite a lot that's in Vienna and I just simply took wherever I went I took a small camera with me mm. Well it's interesting that the the two narrators that you have of the film, it's not obvious um, to the viewer where they're located in time in relation to each other. It suggests that there's been some kind of time slippage that people from different eras managed to meet. And yet the discussion that the film makes is that uh, a city represents all eras because buildings are built on top of buildings and there are always fragments of the past. I mean, were there any particular streets or fictions or locations that you visited that suggested that to you or was it just an idea that grew organically well i think i had the idea um right from the start and and it's um you know it's not my idea it's Mm. it's very vividly um illustrated in works like um peter Ackroyd's london which which i liked a great deal um any archaeology of cities you know reveals that um, so it, that the idea that there was one city, and in a sense it was kind of ambiguous, it's, it's, it's a woman in the past and a man in the present, mm. or are they basically just in the same city, but separated by space, mm. not time, which is the equivalent, because obviously it takes time to cover space. Um, but the, I think the kind of really important moment for me in the film that changed a lot and made, made the film kind of completed, in a way, completed the film for me, was visiting Athens, mm. which was by chance. Um, it wasn't because I, I didn't go there to shoot for the film, but of course I had my camera with me. And the um, Acropolis Museum in Athens has been, when, when they were um, digging the foundations, they of course found a lot of, um, of an old city underneath, and they kept it there. Mm. They kept it um, so that if you, you can see They've, kept, they've put a lot of glass floors in the Acropolis Museum so you can see down below, underneath the old city. Mm. I, mean, I don't know how many people even look, look at it, but it's, it's, it's absolutely beautiful. Mm. And that gave me the idea um, of, of kind of including much further past. I was, I was thinking of, of all the images would be about the future city, but in fact, instead, the film started in the present, looking back into the past, with the, with one of the characters being an archaeologist. Mm. But so that was just one of the fortunate moments. That, I mean, that's, that shows the way the film developed organically, and it was, it's one of the kind of fortunate moments. But that's what happens if you look around, you, you know, you, and you keep open and, 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 and keep a camera with you. Mm. And it's... By pure coincidence, there was an article in The Guardian this morning about um, a primary school in Peterborough where there are 20 different languages spoken in the play, uh, in the playground and none of the pupils have English as their first language, but they all manage to get along through, you know, keenness uh, on learning English and, you know, sort of developing uh, in the educational system. But your film, you know, very much delves into the idea of um, a common language that perhaps could be developed by mankind and yet with the hegemony of American culture with the rise of of China as a global superpower 
it doesn't seem to be a discussion that people are having anymore. And it certainly seems like, you know, a good 30 or 40 years since uh, people were suggesting Esperanto as, as a, a shared language. Well, that section of the film um, that relates to kind of invented languages, um, I mean, the interesting thing is they, they were, I think they were invented in the beginning of these inventions was, was the 18th century. Mm. I mean, at least they, they kind of blossomed in the 18th century. And the language that I describe as used in the city, which is soul, soul race soul, mm. is actually um, invented in Napoleonic times. Right. And that language actually does exist. So huh. whereas, I mean, maybe I shouldn't be, I'm being too much <laughs> film of the, to this point, but the mathematics, um, Uber maths is entirely my invention. Mm. And soul, soul race soul is entirely true. <laughs> um, but true of 200 years ago. Yeah. Um, One of the ideas that your film touches on that seems to be a bit of a recurrent theme of science fiction films that are set in cities is the kind of fractured um, psyche, you know, like, like we discussed. You don't know exactly what location or what temporal location protagonists are in, and therefore you can't entirely trust, you know, the nature of their dialogue, you know, whether it's um, invented, imagined, based on scraps of information. And that kind of theme of unreliable narrators in these kind of movies seems to crop up again and again in films like Blade Runner, World on a Wire, Dark City. Do you think it's almost a natural response to cities that characters within them have to have a fractured psyche because there are so many different cultural and historical elements at play in the environment that in order to adapt you need to be a different person every day? I don't think in my film the narrator from the future, the man, is, um, is an unreliable witness that the world is so big and that the city is so big that, um, you know, he, he's involved in a kind of search. I mean, I, in a way, he's an urban explorer. Mm. And I looked at a lot of kind of urban explorers, um, videos as reference material. I didn't use any, but I was... I was I was contemplating using some in the film, um, but all the stuff where he's exploring, I actually shot in the end. Um, I think he's, I don't think he's unreliable, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, this, he, it, it's just a city is so big, it's, it's just impossible to come to terms with, and it changed. I, I mean, I see, I see your point actually, because of the bit about the talk of the top of the city. Yeah, there's a lot of rumour abounding about what's in the city. Mm. No one, no one quite knows. No one can get there. Um, so the unre unreliability is due to just simply not being able to travel, mm. not to be able to see it all, and you know the city always changing. And you know, even I feel that about London, where I've <laughs> always lived. That you know, if I actually I was coming back, um, crossing the river. 
day and looking across over the city and seeing what's being built there. And, you know, I wouldn't be able to describe the, the skyline. The sky, if I described the skyline to someone, to, to someone yesterday, um, I would not have, you know, just described a few of the buildings, but mm. I wouldn't have remembered them, some of the new ones being built. Mm. Cool. Okay. Oh, thank you very much. Okay. Babeldom is released in city-based cinemas in the UK on the 8th of March. And you can find more information about the film at www.babeldom.com. That's B-A-B-E-L-D-O-M.com. Sci-Fi London, where my Q&A with Zoltan Sostai was recorded, is this year producing its own short film and feature film to be screened at the festival. The feature, The Search for Simon, directed by Martin Gooch, whose film Death with Leslie Phillips was well-received at last year's festival, and the short film Eclipse by director Ilana Rain, whose documentary We Are All Cylons showed at the festival in 2011, are both looking for support and funding to help their process of production. For more information about both films, please go to www.scifilondon.com. Anyone who's still feeling generous and would like to contribute to new ongoing projects by comic creators and filmmakers have a number of options in which to invest their money. Oxford-based creator Charles Cutting is looking for people to back his anthology The Black Cloud, which features three short stories by different writers including Torek Musa, Christian David and Brian J. Showers. Charlie's after $2,000 to cover the printing and shipping costs, and by going to his Indiegogo page, indiegogo.com stroke projects stroke black dash cloud, you have a variety of incentives costing between $15 and $200, entitling you to the likes of sketches, advertising space, and original artwork if you'd like to help fund the project. That's at indiegogo.com stroke projects, stroke black, dash cloud. Another anthology which looks at comics from a journalist point of view is the 21st anniversary of Tripwire, and this paperback or hardcover edition will include new material, including art by the likes of Drew Struzan, Mike Magnola, Howard Chaikin, Frank Quietly, Walter Simonson, and more, and features looking at the trends and issues that have played a major part in comics and genre film over the past 21 years. You can invest between a pound and 500 pounds, leading to signed copies, PDFs, prints, t-shirts and more. Please go to kickstarter.com and search for Tripwire. And for more information, go to tripwire-magazine.com. In this week's Panel Borders, which is broadcast on Resonance FM on Sunday the 3rd of March at 6pm and podcast afterwards on my blog www.panelborders.wordpress.com I'm talking to four webcomic creators who are involved in this week's Webcomic Artist Swap Project, or WASP for short. In this musical chairs experiment, webcomic creators including Niche Angel, Rebecca Burgess, Sarah Burgess, Richie K. Chandler, Zarina Liu, Nanny Abim, 
Jade Sarson, and more, we'll be having a go at writing and drawing each other's webcomics, hopefully bringing new readers in to stories they haven't heard of before, and raising awareness of the webcomic scene in the UK in general. You can check out the Webcomic Artist Swap Project by going to www.tempolush.com stroke wasp that's t-e-m-p-o-l-u-s-h dot com stroke wasp and you can hear my conversation with four of the creators on this week's panel borders reality check was recorded edited and introduced by alex fitch is a panel borders production and there'll be a new episode online soon thanks for listening